Welcome to AZ TechCast, sponsored by the Arizona Technology Council, with your hosts, Steve Zylstra and Karen Nowitz. AZ TechCast is dedicated to covering innovation and technology in Arizona and beyond. Broadcasted monthly, AZ TechCast invites leading experts to have real conversations about what is happening in the tech sector across the state of Arizona. From regional news to innovative startups, companies, and emerging technologies, AZ TechCast covers the critical issues and economic trends propelling the state's growing tech ecosystem. On December 25, 2021, NASA launched the James Webb Space Telescope, the largest and most complex space telescope ever built. And four days later, Webb's massive sun shield deployed, and within weeks, its primary mirror started unfurling. On August 12, 2022, Webb's first images were released, and our view of the universe was forever changed. But what did it take to get there? Welcome to Phoenix Business Radio X. I'm Karen Nowicki, president and owner of Phoenix Business Radio, and I'd like to welcome you to AZ TechCast, sponsored by the Arizona Technology Council. AZ TechCast is dedicated to covering innovation and technology in Arizona and beyond. Broadcasted monthly, AZ TechCast invites tech and business experts to have real conversations about what's happening across the state of Arizona. AZ TechCast discusses the critical issues, topics, and trends propelling the state's growing tech ecosystem. So please join me in giving a warm welcome to today's featured guest. We have Eric Novak, who's the general manager at 4D Technology. Welcome, Eric. Hi. Happy to have you. Marsha Riki, professor of astronomy at the University of Arizona. Welcome, Marsha. Hello. Welcome. And I understand after a, a moment of, of getting to know each other in what I'll call the green room, Stephen mentioned you were a speaker for uh, one of the events just this past week. Yes, I had the pleasure of going down to the Tucson Convention Center and giving a nice talk about web and how we have gotten from launching to taking data. Fantastic. So we'll get to hear a little bit more about that with your peers as well. And then also with us today is Fred Milligan. He's the Vice President of Research and Development at Via Via Solutions. Welcome, sir. Thank you. And it's actually Van Milligan, but Fred, just Fred will do. What did, I, what did I say? I don't know. Let's not go back to whatever I said. Okay, I'm used to the Van disappearing. I, I must have done that. Fred Van Milligan, sure. thank you for the correction. Okay. And yeah. I think I might even not have said um, your the company name correctly, Viavi. Uh, Correct. Yes, got it right the second time. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for that. Uh, and joining us as well is Steve Zylstra. He's the president and CEO of Arizona Technology Council, and we want to welcome Steve as well. Thank you, Karen. It's always good to be here with you, and uh, we have some great guests today and, and a really important subject to all Arizonans, all Americans, and really everyone in the world. I think it's going to be a fascinating conversation it's insurmountable amount, amount of changes that we've faced and exciting innovations developed a cosmic collaborations that led to the most successful space telescope that's ever been launched. And so to Steve's point, we've got a lot of ground to cover. Let's get started. We do always like to start this conversation with each of you introducing yourself uh, and your respective companies and a little bit about your background. We do have up to an hour for our show, so please don't be shy. And then we'll jump in with the questions that, that we've prepared for this conversation today. And here's what I didn't say when we were in the green room. I'm looking at a couple different places. I'm looking at the screen because each of you are up on the screen in our studio. And then from time to time, I look at my laptop in front of me because uh, I've got some notes here as well. 
So uh, just know that I'm, I'm still with you. I'm, I'm not off texting my children. <laughs> the other thing I'd like to suggest is we, we have so many great topics and questions that we want to make sure we get in here. I don't know that each of you need to speak or answer to each question. We'll just see how that evolves naturally. And Steve and I don't like to necessarily play the gatekeeper. We want you just to jump in. So we'll pose a question or topic. Sometimes we'll mention somebody by name if we specifically know this is something that really that you can speak to. But let's just have a, a, an awkward moment of silence for a second when the question has been posed, and then any one of you can jump in as if we're all out for a cup of coffee or meal together, and that's how we'd have a conversation anyway. Fair enough? Great. All right. Yep. Very good. So, Steve, let's start with you. If you don't mind, I typically go last, but let's give these folks a few moments to warm up. How about telling us about the Arizona Technology Council and your role and all the great things you guys are up to? Thank you, uh, Karen. Again, it's great to be here, and uh, we've got some spectacular guests today. Uh, The Arizona Tech Council is a statewide organization. Uh, We have offices in both Phoenix and Tucson. It's a member-based organization. We have over uh, 700 member companies across the state in all types of technology-related disciplines. We actually have about 95 members in the optics and photonics space, by the way, which is very interesting. We do public policy advocacy at the state and federal level. We do over 100 events a year. We do a couple of podcasts uh, like this. Uh, We have many publications, a magazine, newsletter, and we uh, negotiate lower cost products and services, particularly for our smaller member companies. And a huge amount of events uh, that are back again in person, fortunately. Yeah, and our biggest one of the year is coming up on November 8th, the Governor's Celebration of Innovation, a celebration of technological innovation statewide. So good. Uh, Daryl, our producer, and I will be there for the first time. We're very excited about and we're new members of the Arizona Technology right. Council as well. Super excited right. about that. It's been a goal of mine for several years. All right. So uh, let's have any one of you get started. Give us a, a little bit of uh, background about yourself, the company you represent, and then we'll go all the way around till we have an opportunity to start asking some questions. Oh, I'm happy to start. I don't actually work for a company. I'm Marsha Rigi, and I'm a professor at the University of Arizona. But in terms of tech and space, you know, I'm the principal investigator for the near-infrared camera on the Webb Telescope. But this is the third space project that I've participated in. And of course, the astronomy department is only one of several departments that, that participates in NASA space projects. My colleagues over in planetary sciences have done many, and we're starting to get people involved over in the climate research and earth studies area as well. All right, maybe I'll jump in. Uh, I'm Eric Novak. I'm the general manager of 4D Technology uh, here in Tucson. We're uh, down by the airport where a lot of the Tucson optics industry is concentrated, and uh, my company has been around for just over 20 years now, and our specialty is in precision measurement of uh, surfaces and optics in very difficult environments. So, for instance, on the James Webb, we tested the shape of each of the mirrors. We tested the overall alignment and quality of the other optics within the system. And we even had uh, systems that were used with NASA's cryogenic chambers to test the scaffolding that holds the whole James Webb together as it cooled down to cryogenic temperatures to make sure that the actual shape deformations 
that happened uh, matched the modelings that they knew that once it launched into space, it would all perform correctly. And I've been in the uh, test and measurement field pretty much my whole career, so for 30 years testing everything from the roughness and defects on a turbine blade for a jet engine to artificial retinas to exciting scientific projects like the change web. I'm Fred Van Milligan, and I'm a vice president of the Abbey Solutions. Um, let me back up a second because this is a new company for Arizona. In fact, we just moved their headquarters there in the last couple months, and we're having our opening of our first facility two days after the event that uh, Steve mentioned earlier. So on November 10th, we're opening up our facility there. Uh, our background, we're, we're nominally about practically a $1.3 billion company, primarily working in the optics area. The group I'm in is uh, largely focused in Santa Rosa right now, but we are the group that's moving into Chandler uh, soon and expect to expand and continue to expand there. Uh, we work primarily in optical components and very difficult surface treatments. In fact, uh, several of the, what we did do for James Webb, most of what we did for James Webb is actually was in Marsha's uh, near cam device. I'm sure it's nice enough to come up and give us a presentation years ago that I looked at the, uh, actually like 10 years ago, whatever it was, 15 maybe. Uh, I looked at it recently, so I'll be able to compare everything she says today to what she predicted was going to happen 15 years ago when she gave us that presentation. <laughs> But uh, we're all very excited, actually, to get a facility going up in uh, Arizona. And originally, I'm from uh, University of Arizona of Optical Sciences, as was Eric, uh, where I was, uh, had the pleasure of working with uh, Angus McLeod, who largely trained in one way or the other most of the part of the industry I'm in. I mentioned uh, earlier the number of companies that the Tech Council has in the optics and photonics space. Can one of you define the study of optics and photonics and... Uh, how does that impact individuals in Arizona every day? Yeah, so I think we all probably have our own take on it. You know, I'll, I'll talk maybe about how I got into it. Uh, I started off at U of A and as a chemical engineering major, and after working in a chemistry lab my first summer, I said, well, maybe that's not for me. And my roommate was looking into uh, switching majors as well, and he said, you know, Arizona has one of the world's best optics programs. And I said, what is that? And he said, well, you know, working with holograms and fiber optics for communication, uh, sensing systems for uh, satellites and astronomy, lasers for communications and medical and defense, medical imaging. And, and I'm like, man, that's extremely high technology. and really interesting right and you can almost do anything in optics and uh so you know i was very attracted to it i uh applied and got into the optics program at u of a which i you know is arguably the best but certainly among the top three optics programs in the entire world for training people in all of these industries and it's critical arizona has a large semiconductor presence and that's what the hobby is involved in and astronomy and yeah, like it, your everyday life, right? What makes your cell phone camera good or the headlights on your car work well, all, all of that traces back to optics and it's a huge industry in Arizona and, uh, and super exciting. I'm, I'm sure that there are now far more programs worldwide 
than back in the day, huh? As far as the educational programs, I can't, yeah, even, I can't an, even imagine. It's an expanding field. Even if you ever visit the optics college at the University of Arizona, the main building is uh, a bit of a maze because uh, it's now, I think, going to get its fifth expansion space. And so it just, even here, it keeps growing worldwide as well. But uh, I, I must say that the U of A optical science program remains the number one program in the world. Um, wow. And there are, there's another great program in New York State and other places, but U of A is still number one. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, and just to be clear, we actually do have a small facility in Rochester as well. But, uh, yeah, but yeah, <laughs> I, I, do, I do agree that uh, Rochester is the other place, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I can answer stuff what Eric said. Um, you know, when you think about the importance of it, it's just you know, right now. I'd say when I started, it was just interesting. I thought it was a very challenging field, very exciting, and you could see places that would go. Well, most of those places, it's gone and, and surpassed anything I would have thought of at that point in my career. So these days, I mean, if you, if you look at what you're actually just carrying your cell phone, how much of that is based on optical systems, the cameras, the sensors in it, it's just amazing. So we're going to be talking about really big science today with Marsha, because that's what Marsha does for us. And those are really thrilling to work on. But there's lots of little things. You know, our company puts things on currency, granted counterfeiting, so it's in your wallet. They're in cell phones. Cars are starting to get closer and closer. Self-driving based on optics. So you know, as far as the use cases, there's just a plethora. But on the financial side for the state, yeah, University of Arizona, is, it really is it's a, uh, basically a globe-wide <laughs> presence. And, and the buildup of uh, semiconductor in the, the Phoenix area, that's really going to get into the integrated circuits and things that are starting to happen. It's really where optics in the semiconductor industry is starting to mesh. And I think between ASU, U of A, and the various technology companies in Arizona is just well set to be a hub for what's going to be going on in the next decades. Marcia, anything to add to that? Uh, I was just sitting here thinking about the fact that I, not too long ago, read an article about what somebody thought was the best invention in the last couple of years for consumers. And the author of the article said, you know, backup cameras for cars, that's just the best thing I've ever had. <laughs> and again, that's an optics. The Arizona Technology Council, along with our Optics Valley Committee, does a international event in January called Arizona Photonics Days. So that'll be coming up again in January. Eric already told us a little bit about how he got into the field. Marsha and Fred, can you uh, speak to that? Well, I started out as a kid reading a lot of science fiction, and so I got interested in astronomy. When I went to college, um, it was just after we had landed on the moon, so I thought I wanted to be an astronaut, and I took an aeronautical engineering class. But at the same time, I took a class in astronomy and cosmology from a very dynamic professor, and I, I, I just lost it. I had to become an astronomer. And I came to the University of Arizona right after I got my PhD because this is one of the best places in the world to do astronomy from the ground. And that, of course, led us to being able to compete successfully for space astronomy programs. Brad, anything you want to add about your own? Uh, sure. I'm not sure I can. Uh, I don't think I had the foresight that maybe Marcia had. 
than what she was doing. Um, I, I'll be honest, I was uh, mid-summer after I graduated high school and I decided to go to college. So I was a little late to go, uh, really pit colleges. But when I did my undergraduate work in Illinois, a similar story. I had a professor that asked me to help in his lab. He was studying vibrational patterns in musical instruments using holography. And I kind of got hooked on the optics side of it. It was, you know, it just had technical challenges and, you know, a certain coolness to it. Applied to University of Arizona Optical Science Center, got accepted. And as I said, uh, you know, I had the pleasure of working with Angus McLeod for five years, who was, you know, still about the most brilliant person in the field I'm in that I've ever had the pleasure to work with. That's so cool. Uh, by the way, I, I waited a year or two. I worked for a year after high school and then went to college to become an engineer and spent 20 years in the aerospace and defense industry, a somewhat related industry. And where did you go to school, Steve? What's that? Where'd you go to school? I went to Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh-huh. Oh, I think we played him in football. I went to Western Illinois. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely cool. And, and I, my grandfather was from Kalamazoo. Oh, really? Yeah. About that. Yep. yeah, I grew up in the Grand Rapids area. Can you describe Arizona, Arizona's optics and photonics industry? I sort of led into that with a number of just members that we have that are in that space. And uh, who are some of the key players in the industry here in Arizona, both big and small? Excluding ourselves, right? <laughs> of course. <laughs> no, I think uh, obviously U of A is a major, major player yeah. from a company standpoint. Well, I know for us, when we when, when I think Arizona and where we do business as where our customers in Arizona, it does tend to be the aerospace companies for us. Uh, aerospace isn't the biggest part of our business; it's maybe ten percent of our business. But, you know, Raytheon is it's just a huge facility there. Yeah. And then on the, you know, the flip side of it, people we buy things from, like we buy things from Eric. Now you get into there's an amazing amount of instrumentation capabilities uh, in Arizona. If there's something you need to determine a way to measure or something, it's not always Eric's company, depending on what you're doing, but there's likely someone in that Phoenix, Tucson area that will be amongst the leaders in that area. Eric? Yeah. And there's also, I mean, companies in Tucson that specialize in what they call illumination engineering. So, again, how do the headlights of your car work or other, you know, ways to get uh, light and, and imaging into interesting geometries or packages. In Arizona, there's, yeah, obviously Raytheon is a big player, but there's... Uh, Lockheed and other things. And then there's a lot of small players and consultants and spinoffs from U of A in everything from how to coat optics with either highly reflective coatings or anti-reflective coatings. We have people doing optics polishing, you know, there's just, and then tons of uh, camera companies in Tucson and then Edmund optics just has a huge facility. That's just a few years old. Again, kind of uh, in the vicinity of the airport where uh, they produce uh, optical components as well as whole optical systems for themselves and other other companies. So it's a pretty diverse field. Uh, and even like Arizona Optical Metrology is probably the world leader in making 
holograms that are used in optical testing of complex systems. So those guys are involved in everything from testing virtual reality goggles to medical devices to telescopes and things. Marsha, what were some of the key objectives in building the Webb telescope? Why did we need this new and improved technology? We had Hubble. Yeah, we had Hubble, but Hubble suffers by comparison to Webb in two regards. It's much smaller. Webb has more than six times the collecting areas. That means six times fainter things. More importantly, Webb is optimized to work in the infrared. It's cold. Hubble is kept at the temperature of the laboratory where its mirror was figured, 76 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. That's just terrible for infrared astronomy. We could never detect exoplanets in distant galaxies if we were that warm. So Webb has that big sun shield to let the mirror and the instruments get down to minus 388 Fahrenheit or 40 degrees Kelvin for those that like those units. We needed something like Webb so that we could see in the infrared with the kind of detail that we're used to seeing from Hubble. So we needed bigger and we needed it cold and the goal was to or the goal is to find the first galaxies and to learn a lot about the atmospheres of exoplanets and then all kinds of many projects that astronomers are thinking up and, and competing to do and the objective of looking for exoplanets is is that an opportunity to look for life elsewhere in the in the galaxy or in the universe well, I, I would have to say, honestly, it's hard to say when you can only do the kind of remote sensing you do in astronomy to prove that you've found life. But we certainly will be able to say whether or not we found an exoplanet that's a lot like Earth, has Earth-like temperatures, Earth-like atmospheric comp you know, composition. doesn't prove that there's life, but it gives you some hope that life could exist somewhere. Very cool. I'd like to add, one of the things I always find fascinating about these big astronomical projects, which we usually get involved with at some level, but the technology is so state-of-the-art. And at some level, if you think about what it's really doing when it gets up in space, it's actually looking back in history. And I always find that so interesting. You advance your technology so you can look back in history because, you know, as fast as light is, as far as they're looking, whatever they're seeing happened a long time ago. And, and which is you know, clearly one of the missions to go as far back in history as so I can to see, you know, what caused what. I just always find that amazing. And challenges we had, and, you know, Marsha, thank you. I did let Warren uh, Hendricks, by the way, I have to mention Warren Hendricks was our lead engineer on this. Typically projects like this get a lead engineer and they live with it. It was about a two-year project on our end. I did let him know your compliments on the transmission levels that made his day-to-day. -day. I was going to say, materials to do these things are very unique. I mean, when you start working at 40 degrees K and you worry about color correction and things in your images, they're pretty esoteric materials. So there are a lot of challenges making it. You know, we, we can casually say we made anti-reflection coating and think, yeah, no big deal. Everyone can do that. But when you look at the materials required, the performances that Marcia needed for her device to give her the information she needed, I mean, it was it really was about a two-year project from beginning to end and lots of challenges along the way. But uh, obviously, the challenges were met even better than I think we hoped. One last question, then we'll go to uh, commercial. Marsha, to Fred's point, how, how far back in time 
can we now see? Well, Hubble got us back within 400 million years of the Big Bang. The preliminary data that just came in from my near-spec colleagues implies that we've gotten to at least as close as 100 million years, and there's some chance we're going to get even closer still. So out of the 13.8 billion years that's the age of the universe, we don't have very many hundreds of millions left to go. <laughs> that's just astonishing. Karen, back to you. Yes, we are ready for a little uh, commercial break, and I apologize. We're having some unusual technology challenges today, so I appreciate uh, Steve facilitating as expertly as he has as we begin to uh, make some sense out of what's happening. We just keep rolling, right? The first uh, shout out we want to give to is Arizona Commerce Authority. Uh, Arizona Commerce Authority is AZ TechCast 2022 Innovation Sponsor. And let's hear from Arizona Commerce Authority. Our streamlined pro-business approach helps you achieve more by putting less between you and future success. Less red tape lower taxes, less distance separating you from the tech leaders of tomorrow. This innovative ecosystem will supply your business with tools and resources to compete in the 21st century and beyond. But your future is more than just business success. In Arizona, the lifestyle you want is at your fingertips. Explore cities known for their Southwest heritage and modern vision. Enjoy beautiful scenery and endless outdoor activities on land, water, or snow. And if you're looking for a little friendly competition, we've got plenty of teams to choose from. With constant sunshine, vibrant culture, and natural wonder, Arizona provides a style of living that's entirely unique. People from all over the world call our state home. From student leaders who fill the classrooms of our top-ranked universities to a skilled and abundant workforce that's ready for what's next. To the neighbors, friends, and peers we interact with daily, Arizonans are united by a pioneering spirit that moves us forward. So as you look to the future, know that it's filled with the perfect balance of innovation and high-quality living that makes life better here. I've just decided, I think for Steve and I, we will know that we've reached the masses when someone comes back to you or I, Steve, and says, you know, I heard that Arizona Commerce Authority commercial on your podcast, and it had me and my family and my company moving to Arizona. I, I love hearing that commercial every time because it really does speak volumes to Arizona, the quality of living, and of course, the incredible companies that Steve and his team uh, make sure come here each year. Each of you have alluded to how important Arizona is to you as well. And, and of course, we welcome Fred and his team as well. Uh, so fun, fun to hear from Arizona Commerce Authority. Uh, I think each of you have spoken quite a bit about this, but I want to make sure we, we have a chance to have you make sure it's very well-rounded. If you'll start as we begin this next segment, talking about what role you and your organization, organization specifically played in designing and developing JWST. Did we leave anything out? Are there other highlights that each of you would like to add? Well, I'd like to comment that as great as engineers are, if we decide that we want to do a, a space telescope project, we can't just give them a list of requirements. We really have to work hand in hand with them so that they know when to tell the scientists, calm down, that's not feasible. On the other hand, when they come back with the design and there's something that's not 
quite like how we want it. We can we can get it squared away and we can end up with a great project if we work together as a as a team. And my team here at the university that worked with both some detector people in Camarillo, California, and uh, some engineers at uh, Lockheed Martin in Palo Alto, as well as some engineers here in Tucson. It took all of us doing doing our bits to make a great product. And I think it, it's important when you're trying to push the envelope to have both scientists and engineers working hand in hand. Because, you know, scientists will go off the deep end and try to do something that's totally crazy. And on the other hand, the engineers can't always interpret what we mean. And so we've got to got to work together to make a project like web happen. I'm not sure our uh, audience yet appreciates the magnitude of the contribution you, your team, your partners, and so on have made to this telescope. As, as I understand it, the photographs we're now getting are coming through the camera that you and your colleagues designed and built. So can you speak more to the details of what it took to do what you did? And then, and then I'd like to hear from Fred and, and Eric on the contributions that they made to that success. Yeah, I, and I should comment there are a few, some of the images were taken with the mid-infrared instrument as well. But what I'm about to say kind of applies for both NearCamp and, and MIRI. So I started working on JWST back in 1998 when we were still trying to kind of uh, come up with the mission concept as a whole. And at that time, I didn't even know that I would work on near camp eventually we responded to a call for proposals from nasa we won and we won because we had a clever optical design the idea was that we would use a beam splitter to separate long and short wavelengths so that we could optimize our detector use to sample the psfs correctly and so on and and that had many good consequences and by use of lenses instead of mirrors, which tended to be a more traditional way to do a camera like NearCam, we were able to save enough room in the instrument package that we could have four instruments, not just three. And so once, once we had the design concept fully fleshed out, the engineers went and did the detailed design work. Then they started doing the fabricating and occasionally fabricating. We had to make some choices when something didn't go quite the way we wanted. And then once NearCam got assembled, my team in particular spent a lot of time helping test NearCam by itself. Then when it got bolted into the instrument package with the other three instruments, then when it got bolted onto the back of the telescope, and then when the whole thing got tested at in Houston in the, at Johnson Space Flight Center. So... And then after launch, we spent another six months helping test it and check it out after launch. So we've we've uh, we've traveled a long way to get to where we are now with getting our science data. Fantastic, Marcia. Thank you, Fred. Let's hear from you as well. What role did you and your organization play? Right. So we uh, coded four of the uh, components within the NearCam. As I said earlier, that in itself sounds like what we do that every day fairly simple coatings, but obviously these weren't simple. These type of projects usually come to us 
I like to think more often than that they come to us because if it can be done, we're probably the guys that can do it. But they do a lot of back and forth. And the materials that we needed to coat on were you know, zinc felonide, which was a challenge for us, but barium fluoride, lithium fluoride, really nasty materials. And they don't like temperature. They don't like temperature shock. They don't like being cleaned. They don't like being touched. Uh, so there are a lot of challenges. When you get into these programs, you work back and forth. In our case, our direct customer was Lockheed. Russia was the ultimate user. So there's a lot of back and forth of what can you do, what can you sign up to, what will it take to do even better than that? And I think we actually got to the even better than that. But it was a, a very challenging, as I said. On one hand, we can say it's four components, depending on some components we make. You know, that means we took, we spent an hour on it. But this one is a couple of years to make sure we could actually do them. Marsha mentioned earlier that beam splitter, that split it into two broad wavelength regions. So we made that as well. And the, the concept of a, making this transmissive, which was so important to them be able to put as much capability in the devices they did. Yeah, it wasn't for the uh, the pale of heart to try to uh, try and do that. There are a lot of materials issues in, in that design, which were solved. But, uh, but I'm sure when Marsh and team were designing it, absolutely sure they're fully aware of how risky it was going to be, but it was able to be done. And you know, for us, um, it was an exciting two years. And, and I'd comment that one of the, the challenges that we had with, with what Fred's folks had to do was that, yes, coating the lenses needed to be done for throughput and things, but they could not do anything that would cause any iota of distortion because our right. optical performance requirements were extremely tight because near cam is also used to align the 18 mirror segments. And so we had a requirement on wavefront error that was almost impossible to make. Yeah, pretty close to impossible. <laughs> and then on top of that, it all is work at 40 degrees K, as Marcia was saying. Now that's, you don't routinely have equipment around to measure things at that temperature, which I think is why Erica's team started getting engaged so much. Yeah, and Eric, you talked earlier about uh, a lot of the testing you did. Can you tell us more uh, about your experience with this project? Yeah, I mean, it really was an extreme challenge, you know, for us as well. The mirror segments need to be accurate in shape to roughly a hundredth the width of a human hair, and they all have to be identical and they have to maintain that shape. And from a testing standpoint, we needed to test those mirrors. So your test equipment has to be even better in terms of resolution. But we're testing those mirrors uh, when they're perhaps 50 or 100 feet away from the instrument that's doing the testing. So for us, you know, our specialty is doing those measurements uh, in the presence of air turbulence, which normally isn't a big thing, but if you think of just looking at a hot road and how the road distorts, now I'm trying to measure something to a nanometer level, and I need to measure independent of that. And then again, measuring into cryogenic chambers as things cool down. So on the shape front, it was extremely difficult. And then on the roughness front, you're talking about measuring the roughness of these two, you know, roughly the roughness of uh, the width of 10 atoms. So uh, 
fractions of a nanometer of roughness because it, the surface is too rough, the light scatters or bounces around too much, and you lose signal noise and reduce capability. And so we sold more than 20 different instruments into the program, some highly specialized for the program, some uh, more commercial. But to Marsha's point earlier, I mean, this really is a, when you talk about big science, you're talking dozens and hundreds of companies, everyone from machine shops to the optics companies to the materials providers to the coders, and just making sure everyone works together. The data you present is in common enough language that everyone can understand it and use it to improve their processes. So there's a lot of just logistical challenges, which we didn't fortunately have to manage, but you know, NASA did. But uh, then even just the intercompany workings were really uh, pretty astounding, making sure everyone was on the same page. And when everything went together, it went together smoothly, which obviously is the case because, uh, you know, even with the micrometeorite strike, the system is still performing much better than anyone ever, ever hoped it would. After another break and a word from our sponsor, I would love to have us talk a little bit more about some of the technical challenges that you all face in working with JWST. I know we've alluded to some just now, uh, but before we do that, let's take our last break. We want to hear from the 2022 Tech Advocate sponsor, JDH Insights. Thank you, JDH Insights, for being our 2022 Tech Advocate sponsor. A leader in coaching and executive development, JDH Insights is committed to helping organizations cultivate and leverage their most important and complex asset, their humans. Visit JDHinsights.com to enhance leadership and improve team dynamics to take your business to the next level. Tech challenges. We've alluded to some of them. What were some of the other things? What's the behind the scenes that we, we might not know about that you'd be willing to share? So I'll, I'll share a couple. Um, you know, there's always like 90 things you have to solve to get to the one big problem you're actually trying to solve. Uh, for us, as I said, the materials that were required to meet the, the performances in the final system, they were just very difficult to deal with. I think we went through three different approaches as to how to put a pad between the lens and our tooling before we put it in our vacuum chambers, which is how we, we do our work. Obviously, we knew the tech things we cared about. First two literally started to rip off material out of the, out of the, wasn't a final lens at that point. Of course, we were using something else to test with. I was ripping the material apart that would have been in the lens. So a simple thing like, how do I put something pliable and smooth that will still allow us to hold this without scratching it? First two tries actually literally tore material out of the, out of the, uh, the lens material. So there, there, so just hundreds of those things you worry about that when you get into if someone hands us a piece of glass, you know, we know a billion ways to deal with it. Someone hands us lithium fluoride. It's, I have to have, find something that can do this without impacting the lithium fluoride. And, you know, truthfully, and Marcia, I'm sure remembers even more than I do that it took us several tries to find out how do I even get that part into our process chambers to be able to do what we need to do. Marcia, how about you next? And then we'll hear from Eric as well. One of the things that happened late in the assembly of NIRCAM was that Lockheed Martin discovered that they had not uh, done the, they had not laid out exactly correctly the little interface plates that went 
you know, the, the NIRCAM optical bench is made out of beryllium, so you can't go back and redrill holes. And we had to mount a lot of optics onto this bench through some interface plates. They discovered that there was a mismatch and they needed some small machined parts to help be able to sort of have a little bit of slop in moving these plates around and then tighten them down. And you needed these sort of unique unique almost that not really washers but little i forget the name of them but little little um sleeves that went around some bolts and those sleeves had to be made out of some exotic materials again and lo and behold the university machine shop here can machine a huge variety of different kinds of metals not beryllium but almost anything else and so late in the game we rescued part of Lockheed's final assembly by getting the machine shop to make these bushings very quickly. And they did a fantastic job. We didn't lose any schedule over this. And what was really the final kicker was they were cheaper than the outside company Lockheed. Would have hired. But anyway, anyway, it was one of those stressful things where we needed something in, in a hurry and the university came through. So good. Eric. Yeah, so for us, I mean, it was really verifying the accuracy of the measurement and making sure that everything was, uh, you know, if we measured it and presented a result, it was believable um, and something people could act on. You know, if you remember when the Hubble first went up, uh, it had an optics problem, and that was because the test setup used where the Hubble optics was incorrect. And that led to, you know, a whole rescue mission for that, which would not have been even possible here. And then the other was kind of letting people know, you know, once we had them, our measurement map, helping them work out the coordinates so they could use it to better correct and better fix things, right? So working with them on fiducials so that our measurements would have known marks in them and then they could reload it on a polisher and and polish based on that coordinate system to really you know make things better and better so uh you know it was just a challenge you know working with everyone always making sure everyone's on the same page and uh verifying everything you know three or four times knowing that you only really have one shot to get it right sorry i had to unmute myself marcia we were all anxious uh, about the launch and about whether when it got out there billions of miles into space, uh, everything that was going to work the way uh, it was intended to work. And then when we first saw some of the images, they were all over the place, right? And then, um, and they were blurry. And then all of a sudden, we started seeing images. Um, can you tell us what you were going through during that whole experience from launch to the mirrors becoming operational? Because your camera, as you said earlier, helped align the mirrors uh, so they could look deep into the universe. Yeah, and of course, the launch is the scary, is a very scary part because rockets are controlled explosions. And of course, that went beautifully. And the Ariane Spas people did such a good job. We have enough uh, station-keeping fuel to last for maybe even as long as 25 years. And then 
there was, of course, worrying about all of the deployments, which took over um, two weeks for everything. And they all went just ex- exceedingly well. And they actually got ahead of schedule for a little while. And then for me, the next big concern was that NearCam would turn on correctly. And once we were turned on, that everything was actually functional, that we could sense light. So we we took the images that found the 18 segments in their higgledy-piggledy state. And then uh, there was quite a long period of taking images the wavefront sensing team analyzed them, then they uploaded commands to the mirror segments, and eventually we got the mirror completely aligned and so that it was nigh on to perfect. And then we started using more of MirrorCam, and I could finally rest easy because <laughs> we had been worried there was one mirror support in the second half of MirrorCam that we knew was um, subpar, but it had, all the analysis pre-launch said that the other two struts would hold the mirror just fine and that everything would be okay. And lo and behold, yes, everything was okay. And then, then it was just a matter of going through and doing all kinds of calibrations to get us to where we could take the gorgeous images because we have to do things make certain that the filter wheels were aligned and and the readouts were going the way we thought, all, all sorts of little details. But all of that went just as well as one could have hoped. Let's talk a little bit about what's next to come for the telescope. Who wants to take a stab at that for us first? I, so, um, so one of the things I'd like to ask first, though, uh, is what are the what have been the greatest accomplishments so far, what has uh, blown your mind <laughs> as a result of what you've seen and experienced? Uh, well, of course, it's very, very early days, and there's been lots of beautiful imagery, but the scientific impact of those images is just beginning to be realized. I think one of the exciting things is that we're already seeing that our ability to study the atmospheres of exoplanets is quite f- powerful. We found greenhouse gas on another planet. Um, I mean, people would have thought that, that we would see such, but it's it's always good to go out and actually prove it. And what was amazing was that on Hubble, it took more than two years to learn how to reduce that kind of data. With Webb, everything is so stable that, gee, you took it, and as soon as you had a couple days to check it out, bingo, you had, you had your result. And now my team is uh, just finished getting their first batch of survey data to find the most distant galaxies. I'm sort of under a, a team embargo, so I can't show show some of the, the pretty stuff, but we are going to succeed in our goal of finding some of the earliest galaxies. I've just seen some absolutely stunning data, and I can't wait until we're getting till we have it written up and can share it with with the whole world. And of course, everyone's seen how beautiful the pictures are and how much more detailed they are than Hubble. That that's where our, our optical alignment, optical quality comes through is, is the fine detail that we're seeing. Eric and Fred, uh, given your organization's contribution to this, it, it, you must just be elated 
to hear these things and how well it's going. And the whole company just might, must be excited about the contributions you made to one of the most significant science projects in, in man's history. Yeah, I mean, we certainly had quite the celebration year when it successfully launched. And then it was so impressive. It was such a complex endeavor to unfold it all and get the heat shield working. And and that that went even better than planned. I mean, through all these contingency plans we had to vibrate the uh, telescope in space and to spin it back and forth a little bit and to heat different elements. And really none of that was even necessary at the end of the day. And so, yeah, it's been amazing. And I would say every week someone in our company is, you know, sending out the latest pictures, you know, yeah, the pillars of creation last week. I mean, seeing the earliest galaxies, seeing detail on Jupiter that we've never seen before, even um, looking and, and learning that, you know, galaxies were fully formed sooner than people maybe even thought. Been really, really exciting and really energizing to the company to be to be part of that, right? To to see what you did, you know, kind of making a difference. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been wonderful, really. I don't know if Eric would agree or not, but I, I think in any company that makes optics or is involved in the optics industry, there's some percentage of closet astronomers. <laughs> I mean, it's a path so many people take into optics. So, you know, I know we have a few people, as same as Eric says, start sending out pictures. I mean, we have one guy that chases eclipses around the world and takes photos. Of course, he gives us updates and anything coming out right now. So, yeah, it's exciting. You know, so we get involved in these type of projects. And, you know, when, when you're part of something, but you're not, you know, Marsha's like in the lead, I'm looking at the data. You know, we're putting components inside. Uh, it's always exciting when you do that on a project that suddenly makes this biggest splash and you can see what you did is really doing something. We're almost out of time. And uh, I just want to bring this home by asking you, this is a project that's every bit as exciting in my mind as landing the first human on the moon. How do we use this to get the next generation uh, of young people interested in optics, photonics, astronomy, you know, the field that led to this unbelievable project? Yeah, so I think, you know, there's a lot of opportunities, particularly in Arizona, for people who are interested in optics, right? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of information on the internet you can always pick up, but, you know, U of A has optics camps for students to learn more about optics, and that's a, a summer program. They even have a, a winter program for a prospective uh, undergrad and graduate students that are entering university. A lot of the companies in town have internships. So currently in my company, I have a few high school students interested in science and engineering who are interns here, all the way up through undergrads and graduate students working here. And uh, so there's opportunities there as well. And then even just, you know, attending some of the different, you know, events in town that are sponsored by you and, uh, and other organizations. There's often, you know, kind of optics get-togethers or Landrow has 
viewing parties or things like that. And so, you know, there, there are a lot of opportunities, I guess, uh, you know, reach out to companies in, in optics and, uh, and, you know, one thing is we all, I think all three of us, uh, and most people in the industry, we really want it, right. And we, we promote it. We want to share it and, and we just can't wait to work with interested parties and show them what we're doing and, Oh, no, we, we don't just make eyeglasses, you know, which is a common question we get. Uh, but to really show people how how exciting and how pervasive the field can be. Steve, if I could add just real quickly about Marcia and since she's she's the star of this thing. I think this is a you know, the government knows that these this type of technology is important. And when you get these big splash situations, you certainly want to get it out because it does breed interest in people in their high school years and even pre that. But one thing I've noticed more and more in a lot of initiatives that the government's leading is they literally put a part of that initiative into training now and getting the information out. It's no longer just develop this. There'll be a whole section in there to say, Get this information out. Make sure you're training the next generation's engineers. I don't think that was always the case, but I see it almost all the time now. And I know at least at the Avi, we're we're engaged in several scenarios like that where we're working with uh, universities on bigger efforts where a large part of it is in the in the bringing up the next excited engineer. Great, thank you. Yeah, we've spent a lot of time trying to go out and give talks that highlight not just the astronomy, but but how did we get the telescope to where it is? How did we build it and, and encourage people to be interested in, in the whole scope of the project? Karen, you want to bring us home? I certainly would love to do that. And I'm grateful for your patience, everybody, today, in addition to just the, the breadth of, and the wealth of knowledge that you're shared. Um, I have a young uh, engineer who <laughs> at home, a freshman in high school, and I'm very excited to go home and share the photos and the conversation and the podcast that we had today. Um, he's not quite sure, you know, in four years where, which direction he's going to go. And as you all have alluded to, everything keeps changing so quickly. Who knows what's going to be available to him? But I'm, I'm now kind of hoping that uh, that this field might be of interest to him. Again, Karen, so, and you, yeah. Karen, and you know I have a son that's in the Space Force. Yes. Do your, your panelists know that as well? Yeah. So he, he was a Embry Riddle graduate, did uh, Air Force ROTC, joined the Air Force, but got recruited into the Space Force. So uh, oh, he's working cool. on space programs now as well. So exciting. Thank you, each of you, for being with us today and sharing your time and expertise. You've been listening to AZ TechCast, brought to you by Phoenix Business Radio with Business Radio X. Today's AZ TechCast was brought to you by Arizona Commerce Authority, the state's leading economic development organization with a streamlined mission to grow and strengthen Arizona's economy. And many thanks as well to JDH Insights, the 2022 Tech Advocate Sponsor. Visit JDH Insights to enhance leadership and improve team dynamics to take your business to the next level. If you're interested in being a podcast participant or sponsor for the Council's AZ TechCast, please contact marketing at aztechcouncil.org to learn more about opportunities to further position you as a tech expert, influencer, and innovator. Until next time, we'll see you again. Thanks for listening to AZ TechCast. Thank you for joining us for this episode of AZ TechCast with Arizona Technology Council, featuring leading tech and business experts that help influence and shape our great state. 
and the industries they serve.